A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of How To Be Sound, the podcast where I, writer and journalist Rosemary McCabe, speak to people I suspect might be sounder than I am and try to get their tips on how to live a a better, sounder life. The podcast has been away for a couple of weeks as I've focused on my writing, which you can subscribe to read on patreon.com slash Rosemary McCabe with an A in my Mac, but also on another podcast I've been working on with my sister entitled Not Without My Sister. You may have seen episode one come up on your How To Be Sound stream. I would absolutely love if you would give it a listen. Let me know what you think. And if you like it, please subscribe and leave it a review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, if you haven't yet, you can also leave a review for How To Be Sound. Today's guest is Chewy Harris who is a friend of mine and also describes himself as a coffee professional. Chewy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me on How To Be Sound. Thank you for having me. Although I have to say, this has been like a long, pointed discussion about when I was going to have you on the podcast, so you kind of invited yourself. Because I'm American. We just kicked the door down. Like, we that don't is wait. actually true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw an opening. I'm like, hey, here's my chance. Uh, I'm here now. What's up? Do you remember the first time that we talked or like the first conversation that we had? Oh, vividly. Um, oh, go on. If I recall, you shared some Instagram post or story about Cunnilingus. Oh, And that God. happens to be a favorite of mine. So I was like, oh, shit, we can talk about this all day. And maybe that's why Beatrice thinks we're weird. Like, we are kind of weird. <laughs> My sister definitely thinks like, well, not that she thinks it's weird to strike up a friendship with somebody you've met online, but she doesn't really understand how how we specifically struck up a friendship. But also, I don't remember it like that. So I feel like you reached out to me or you messaged me first after I had had Session Martina on my podcast because you're a big indie wrestling fan. Right. That's true. That's how I knew you existed as a whole. So that's yeah. when I started to follow you. But it was something... Where- you posted something I was like, oh, okay, this isn't just some gal who's in Ireland recording podcasts and there's Marcos like, we got something in common here. And <laughs> that, <laughs> that's where it clicked. And then, oh. you know, that happened to lead into all your lame ass experiences dating in Ireland. And it was like, oh, well, we can trash these dudes together all day. <laughs> oh, yeah, we did have a lot of a lot of conversation. And actually... I must say that, like, of all the conversations that we had about dating when I was on Tinder and stuff, you were very, very good at calling who was going to be lame. I mean, most of them, so it's easy, but, like, you you had a talent. When you hate men, like, it's really easy to just broad brush paint. <laughs> you mentioned before we started recording that professionally you go by they, them. Right. But kind of among friends, you don't mind he. Can you explain that to me a little bit? Or like, what's the thinking behind that from a gender perspective? So for me personally, I I identify as demi-male. And that just means I'm I'm partially male. Like I I see myself as some degree of partially male. I can't deny that. 
I don't have any dysmorphia or anything. Like, I'm fine with who I am. But I know that that's not all that I am. So I don't mind he. And I've been socialized growing up as he already anyway. But because coffee is a weird scene altogether where it's a lot of white men and then everybody else. And to crack into those spaces, we have to whitewash and adapt and then re- bring the color back once we're in that space. So for me personally, I like to force they, them pronouns in professional settings as a way to create visibility for the next queer person coming up. So it's like, if you can accept me, even though I might not look queer to you, or you might not think I'm queer enough, the next person who's whatever flamboyantly queer is, because you've seen me first, it's easier to accept the next one. And it creates a visibility and acceptance chain. So your kind of level of kind of non-binary, but without without it being or feeling to you like it's extreme or dysmorphic or, you know, anything to do with gender dysphoria is almost like a baby step into LGBTQI plus acceptance or offers a baby step for people if they decide to take it kind of thing. Yeah, because like I'm 37 and for probably six years, once I knew cisgender was a thing, I kept saying, I guess I'm cisgender, but I would always say just cisgender with an asterisk. And I couldn't figure out why there wasn't something that says, yeah, I, I know I'm male, but there's something else there that's just not being represented. And then once the gender non-binary thing exploded and we had new words, new terminology, it was like, well, I found my lane. But because it's kind of like if socialism is the next step to communism, so to speak, well, then before you go full on into transgender people and into radically non-binary people, I'm that socialist step to communism where I come in very friendly and very soft. So it's like, oh, well, then even if I'm a person who has no queer people as friends, these they look at me and say, well, OK, I guess they're not as crazy or as colorful as I thought they were. It's it. I don't know why it makes sense to me, but I've seen it help other people. So I choose to stick with it. But surely that's not your sole motivation like you mentioned that you, that you kind of identify as demi male is that to do with that you identify that like there's a part of you that feels like it identifies as female or is it more to do with the rejection of perceptions of maleness if you know what i mean both um so yeah like i grew up okay it it doesn't help that i grew up with women mostly and i grew up when I moved to my dad in a very gay household and I'd never found any of these things strange because it just was what it was. Mm. But I, I knew even as a kid, like when all the boys were playing with each other, I was playing with girls and playing with doll babies. And like, I was the kid when my mom left the house, I was wearing her clothes and her heels because like, I thought that was cool shit. And it wasn't like I wanted to be a woman. I just thought the trappings of women were cool shit. Mm-hmm. So, I wanted that for myself. And then you get older, and like I'm in high school wearing some of mom's clothes. Like, Oh, I can't just do this because that's how you get beat up. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. well then how do I f- do this for myself without letting everybody know? But then like, even when I met my wife, she'll, she'll bring up all the time that the first time we met in person, 
I was wearing a purse and it fucked her head up. And to me, I'm like, well, it wasn't a purse. It was a men's carry on. But I got a men's carry all because it was a purse that I could carry in public. So, yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, it was it was always a large streak of femininity in me. And it was just trying to balance it out. Like, that was my whole problem when I was a Christian. Like, why is everything so he, he, he? Why isn't, how do we know these, there isn't a she? We have, we have no creation without she. But yet, this thing is never seen. So, I've always been trying to figure out, why can't a man be just as feminine as they are masculine? Like, that makes no sense. Yeah. It's interesting. Tell me about, you mentioned there that when you lived at your dad, you were, you were in a very gay household. Tell me about your dad. Uh, yeah. So if you ask him, he told me when I was in third grade and that's when my mom and dad split up that he told me that my mom told myself that he was a big old F word and I'm whatever a third grader is. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell that is, but okay. And then she allegedly explained it. And I called my dad and I said, yo, mom says this and that. He picked me up from school early and he talked to me about it. I have no recollection of this at all. I was living with my grandmother for a year of high school in New Jersey. And one day she said that she liked my dad's boyfriend. And I looked at her like, the hell? Who's my dad's boyfriend? And she's like, Tony. And I'm like, wait, Tony's not his roommate? Now, they've lived together from, at this point, nine years now. What age were you? I was... A freshman in high school when she said this. This is very cute. This is a very Irish reaction. (laughs) Like, this is the kind of shit that my mom says. And she's like, I had no idea he was gay. I just thought he was living with his friend. You know what I mean? Right. And to be fair, I always thought I was curious. I'm like, there's only two bedrooms. And when I come to my dad's house, I'm in one. And they both sleep in the same bed. But in my head, I'm like, well, I sleep in the same bed with my male cousins. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, I never heard them having sex. I've never seen them. Through a child's eyes, at least, I never saw them as romantically involved. So why yeah. would I have known? So when she told me that, I was just like, get the hell out of here. My dad. Oh, shit. My dad's gay, isn't he? And I called my dad up. I'm like, my grandma said you're gay. Is that true? She's like, I told you this when you were in third grade. I'm like, I had no idea. And suddenly, all my life made sense. Like, <laughs> why we played so much Euro dance in the house or why we had big gay cookouts for years or why our big gay cookouts in the summer went from 30 people to 20 people to 10 people because everybody was just dying from AIDS. Like none of these things made sense as a kid mm. until I had enough understanding. Like, oh shit. I, I knew this all the time and didn't know it. Do you think that as a third grader, like was it a case that you blanked it out or was it literally just a kid being like, that's not important to me? You know what I mean? Like that's not relevant. I think I literally blocked it out because he he remembers the event, like where we went, the meal we had, going to the zoo afterwards. And I don't remember this day at all. Like, I can't even begin to tell you if this happened or if this is some gaslighting. I, I have no idea. But he says it happens. That's kind of tragic for him, though, isn't it? Because, like, I'm sure this was such a big thing for him that he's like, I'm going to tell him, you know, I'm going to sit him down. I'm going to say X, Y, Z. We're going to have this conversation. And he remembers all these details. And you're like, no recollection whatsoever. No. <laughs> what a waste. No, and I never thought about that. But if, so if I found out my freshman year of high school, I moved in with him in my 10th year of high, so 10th grade. Um, and sorry, that's when it was. For the, for the Irish listeners, what grade is your freshman year of high school? Ninth grade. Ninth grade. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do y'all have high school? We so we only have two schools. We have primary school and we have secondary school. And you are in primary school from the age of about four or five until twelve, and then you're in secondary school from twelve till about eighteen. So, so this, we we don't have middle school, you know what I mean? All right, this is about 13 years of age. Okay, Freshman so probably like, about. yeah, so that'd be first or second year of secondary school, yeah. Maybe 14, I don't know. But yeah, so I moved in with him from, for 10th grade, so I'm about 14. And that's when I was like, oh, okay, D.C. is a very gay city. So everything around us was very gay and friendly. But when I went to school, suddenly I was going to a Christian school and I had friends who were very Christian. And it was like, Ooh, there's a lot of me that I just can't be. And there's a lot of my family that I just can't talk about because (laughs) that's just not an accepted thing. So then it was like, just when I was coming into a comfortable environment, it was like, "Mm, let's close that back off again. Yeah. And who who made the decision to send you to a Christian school? Or was that just because of the area you were in? Like was So the neighborhood I lived in in D.C. was sketchy at best. And my dad worked across the border in Maryland. So because there was a school two blocks away from his job, he could drop me off on the way to work. I could walk over after school and we could go home together. That's just how that happened. Okay. It wasn't until my senior year, so 12th grade, that... I became Christian, and that's when shit got even more confusing. Tell me about that decision, because I had always assumed, like when you mentioned that you were once Christian and then weren't Christian anymore, I had assumed that you were like, I mean, like a lot of Irish people, I think, because whenever we talk about like, I'm not Christian anymore, it's kind of assumed that you were born, you were you were christened, you, were, you, you grew up Christian, and then you opted out. But you actually opted in. Yeah, so... My dad grew up Christian. My mom did too. And both of their parents were Christian. But I would go to church with my grandma like Easter and Christmas. But I didn't know why I was there. It was just kind of I'm there because my grandma wanted my companionship. So I went. My senior year of high school, so 12th grade again, I, not to confuse people. My senior Bible teacher, because we had a different grade for Bible lessons every year, freshman year to senior year. He came in and the first thing he did was burst into tears. And I'm sitting there like, oh, okay, this is weird. But what had happened a week before school started was his daughter died from a brain aneurysm. And she was supposed to be in our class. And so here he has 16 smiling faces when they're supposed to be 17. And he just broke. But I'm looking at him throughout the year of how his he was just so statuesque in his resolve that I admired it. I'm like, you lost your daughter and you couldn't do anything to help her. And the last thing you got was a call from her saying, if you could bring home some Tylenol because she has a headache. And that's like her last, like everything was so dramatic that I'm just looking at this guy like, yo, you're, you're like a real hero. And -hmm. through talking with him and we'd go to hockey games together. And somehow I came into Christianity through the back door. And when I graduated, he always would tell me, the way you've come into following Christ and stuff, I feel like you have a leadership role where you could be a pastor if you wanted. And I got to college and I just kept studying the Bible and I would go out and evangelize to friends and to the point where I'd be at the bus stop and somebody just talked to, sat next to me. I just talked to them like, hey, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Like I was that person. And <laughs> for some reason, I, as much as 
I don't want to say Christianity's bad because everybody has their own needs. It made me feel good, but I think it was a mask more than anything internally feeling good. Like I, I smiled outside, so I must have feel, felt good. But inside, I just still wasn't happy. But I could make other people happy. So it felt good that for a change, I wasn't the jackass friend. I was the one who was out here giving people hugs and making people feel better. And I'm like, I have a purpose here. To, so I could, I almost tried to transfer to a Bible college. And I was talking with my then girlfriend. And we broke up because, in my eyes, we broke up because I was accepting the Lord. And I wanted to preach his word. In her eyes, I had been a shit boyfriend for three years. I didn't see that, though. So I just mm-hmm. saw, oh, she doesn't like the Christ. And to hell with this Jesus thing then. And I came back to full-on heathenism. But those six years of my life, yeah, I was I was literally wake up, read the Bible, go to class, come home, read the Bible, go to Bible study, read the Bible again. Like, it was, I have notebooks full of Bible notes. What was it that made you, I guess, turn away from that then, like, what was it that breakup or was it something yeah. was it a slower just the breakup i was because in my head i'm like we've been this is my first real girlfriend we met within two months of college and we just hit the ground running and then we're going into our fourth year and we're breaking up and i'm like the only thing that's changed was two nights ago i asked if you would want to be a pastor's wife two days later we're breaking up if jesus was all for me and for me doing well why would he take the one good thing in my life away? So I blamed religion for that, where as a 37-year-old, I can look back and say, oh, no, dude, you just sucked as a boyfriend. Like, you were just really bad. Well, I mean, and maybe as well, she didn't want to be a pastor's wife. She probably didn't. <laughs> which is... Like, that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, which is totally about, like, I don't know, have we talked about this before, but do you watch Greenleaf? No. No. God, no. Well, Greenleaf is an amazing show about a Memphis megachurch... And it's run by the, <laughs> it's run by this incredibly like manipulative and power hungry family. It's very soapy, like it's kind of like Dynasty or Dallas, but set in a megachurch. You know what I mean? I really enjoy it. You're in but, America's Dynasty. Oh, Dynasty. Dynasty. Well, anyway, anyway, yeah. but it would really make you think twice about being a pastor's wife. Yeah, That's my I, only reference for that. Is no, I, from all the Protestant churches I've seen, like the pastor's wife is very much the first lady, like. It's very, they're even called first lady of the church. So it's, you're out there as a representation of the Christ and of the church and of your husband. It's, that's another issue. Like the whole male centeredness of Christianity just, it never sat well with me. Like even to the point where I went to a Protestant high school, but became Catholic because I was like, oh, we get to worship Mary over here. Well, I want to do this instead. Like it was, I was a mess. Like none of it made sense. When you look back on it now, like, do you ever think about what might have been if you had continued on that path, if you had become a pastor? Terrifyingly, yes. <laughs> because I could look back, if I look into that parallel universe, I will see a quote-unquote happier person who has things together. But I still think I would be just as broken inside as I am now. I would just project better. Because you'd have to. Yes. Because I'm a leader of a flock. I have mm-hmm, to put on mm-hmm. the good face. What do you think it is that you don't have together now? Oh, I, 
My dad, bless his heart, for all the issues I have with him, he's always been a safety net. So if you could have a umbilical cord to a father, I have one with him. Like, I've never fully cut it to where I know if shit hit the fan tomorrow and my marriage went upside down and everything just turned to utter shit, I'd be right back at home with my dad's. And he'd be like, come on home. Like, anytime anything is going wrong, he's be like, come on home and get right again. So I don't fully know how to be an adult still. I'm still learning this. And this is after 10 years of marriage and raising a 12-year-old now and <laughs> numerous job changes and moving. I'm still like, uh, I don't, my wife will tell a story where I forgot how to write a check, where I didn't sign it. And I'm like, who knows you had to sign a check? She's like, because you're not an adult. I'm like, yeah, that, that's fair. <laughs> like, I'm not. I'm a 37-year-old teenager. But I think most of us are. Like, I, I kind of think that's the biggest lie of growing older or of maturity is that, like, we're really sold on this lie that once you reach a certain age, you will be an adult or not even that you'll be an adult, but you'll feel like an adult. Whereas I actually think most of us are kind of stuck in a teenage type, you know, like you have those moments where you just are like, I can't believe I'm 35. Like, I can't believe I'm going to be 40 sooner. Like, 40 is closer now than 20 was. You know what I mean? Like, like those yeah. kind of things that I'm like, that blows my mind. Or like, I, I can remember so vividly being a teenager and the things that I thought that I would have when I was this age or even the things that I felt like feel much more real to me sometimes than even what I was thinking or feeling yesterday. You know what I mean? These moments that were now 20 years ago. From an American viewpoint, I don't think television has helped because a lot of the sitcoms I consume or even teenage melodramas I consume throughout my life made it seem that you hit 21 and it just takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. And I'm still sitting here like, when's it going to start taking care of itself? Meanwhile, my wife has taught the same school, let alone worked in the same field the entire time I've known her, basically. I don't know how that happens to where I'm the person where I don't like working here anymore. I quit. I'm done. And I go somewhere else. Meanwhile, she has like a calendar for what bill is due when. And this meeting is this day. And I have I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Like, I would never. (laughs) What are you? That's not human. But like, she's an adult where I'm just like. But you know what, I think I think you touched on something really interesting there that I think there is a big correlation between careers and that kind of sense of maybe like rootedness or stability that our parents generation or our parents parents generation left school and maybe they went to university and maybe they didn't, but they got a job and then that was the job. You know, that was the job that they had. And in a way that the kind of stability of knowing I'm in this job and I'm in this job for the long term. That, like you said, kind of looked after itself. Right. So everything else got to be kind of worked around that. And you also didn't have any, there were no big questions like, where will I, where will I be next year? Where will I, because you're like, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here in this job. I'm going to be here in this house or like in a slightly bigger house in a couple of years, or maybe with one more child or two more children. But like everything was on a track and it was almost easier to handle that because you're like I know where I'm going I know where everything's going and like I would be very similar to you in that I've had loads of different jobs and once I get sick of something 
I get really like really sick where I'm like I, I can't I cannot do this work anymore like I cannot focus I cannot I have no interest in this and once I lose interest in something I can't even fake it you know what I mean right so like I would be very quick to go this isn't for me anymore I'm going to go and do something else and so I yeah. can't really get with like friends of mine who are teachers similarly who have taught in the same schools for 12 13 years now I'm like how do you like how how is that your life like it just seems so alien to me it also doesn't help that for me personally my life has been very rebellious even if it wasn't for a cause like if everybody was going right i just had to go left because why not like i it it wasn't for a purpose it was just i don't want to be like everybody else like i didn't even want to go to college but my dad was like you know, it was either college or the military and I tried for the military first, but I was too young. So I was like, I guess I'll go to college. And even like, then, I didn't graduate. Like, I left with a semester to go. And I'm just like, I don't, oh. I'm done. I'm done. I went to college to pledge a fraternity and get married. And I did one of the two. But I, that's the whole thing about careers as well. Because you go to college allegedly to learn a trade or theoretically a trade to then yeah. make a career out of it. But I'm a thinker. I like to just know things and like to think about things. I can't make money sitting around just thinking about things. But I also don't have the impetus to turn my brain into a money-making machine. So mm -hmm. people will say, oh, you're so smart. You should be making more money. I'm like, okay, how do I do that? Am I supposed to just go on Jeopardy? And, like, There isn't a track for, hey, you know a lot of trivial shit. Here's a way to make $75,000 a year. But it's if also such like it's such a capitalist mentality The like you you have a skill and like maybe your skill is knowing shit. How do we monetize that? Like that question. How do we monetize that? Right. You know what I mean? For so many different things where you're like, w like we're all so indoctrinated into thinking that the way to. Well, I suppose the phrase make a living actually means more than make money, but now it just means make money. You know and, what I mean? But I would say now more than ever, it literally yeah. means make a living because even people who have careers aren't making any money. They're still living just as check to check as working poor people are. It's just mm -hmm. a different level. But that's a lot of the thing about this country is everything is still based off the baby boom generation to where... You're going to get a two-bedroom house. You're going to have two kids. You're going to have two cars. And everything will just be given to you because that's what America is. It is the grandest opportunity of all. And I'm sitting here, first of all, as a black person, like, where the, where? Where does this happen? Because that never happened for my mom. My grandmother had to work for everything she ever had. My grandfather the same. Where is this American dream? But then I found a career that I thought I really loved in working in coffee. I guess I still kind of do. But you will hear people say, oh, that's nice that you found something you like. But it always seems like, but you could be doing so much more. You could be doing so much better. It's like, well, hold on. I've made a lot of money at places and hated every day of work. Mm -hmm. But I've also worked for $8 an hour and loved every day of work. I'd, I'd much rather like going to work yeah. than hate it but make a lot of money. Because the people I know who make a lot of money at work don't seem to really like their life. <laughs> I don't want that. 
But yeah, I don't and make I mean, my life and I don't make money. So like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who make a lot of money and like their lives. But like, I would totally agree with you in that it's much more important for me for my work to have meaning or to feel in some way meaningful, like what I'm doing or what I'm writing, what I'm creating than like I have been in jobs where if I had stayed in them, I would now be earning six figures. But I don't ever think, oh, I should have stayed. I actually just think I'm so glad I left. You know what I mean? I, I'd I, still like the money. Yeah, okay. Like, so give me the money, but, yeah. but I don't like it <laughs> enough to want to do that job. Right. Because I, I will still think of, like, the, the pressure that I'd be under and the expectation. And because, I mean, you're a woman. I, I'm assuming the lines of oppression are still roughly the same to where you know you're never going to be trained as well. Because people are going to protect their own jobs. And you're always mm. going to be the fall person. So it's like, well, sure, we'll promote you to a point. But when we need somebody to dump everything on, we've got them over there in the corner. And they're the perfect fall person because they're a woman or they're a racial minority or a gender. Mi- like, and I just know every corporate job I've ever had, I was that person. I was brought in, kind of trained. And it was like the second something went wrong. Oh, JR did that. Like, go ask him. It's like, I wasn't trained for that. Do you feel like by that token that you were the kind of token diversity ticket? Like you were you were the token minority in uh, those places or? Yeah, I would say once I started going into coffee roasting, especially, that's when I was like, oh, I'm not really here because I'm good at this. I'm here as a photo opportunity. I roasted a place in Maryland that I would love to name, but I don't even want to give them even negative attention. But we had a head roaster who emigrated from El Salvador. And I got there and I was talked talked into because they were like, you know, you already have previous roasting experience. Like we could easily fast track you this. And two white men got promoted to roasting ahead of me. And one quit and the other one was fired. And I left for two months and then came back. And I still had to wait months before they ever promoted me because then they were like, well, let's promote a white woman instead because now we'll have a woman roaster. And I'm like, well, that's cool because they've been waiting for their shot for a long time too. So that's good. But then I was like, we could have a Central American, a woman and a black person. Holy shit. Let's go with that. And then the more I met other black people in coffee, it was the same stories. Like, you know, well, we could have another white person do this same job or we could look very diverse in a black city and have a black person do this as well. And then that makes us look so liberal. And it's like, dude, we're, we're not we're not chess pieces for y'all's publicity. That's not fun. <laughs> so mm. that's a lot of the reason why coffee just burned out. It's so much emotional labor that I just don't want to deal with anymore. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tell me a little bit about Glitter Cat. Oh, Glitter Cat. Yeah. So Glitter Cat Barista is a nonprofit organization here in the States and their focus originally was training marginalized baristas only for a competition because apparently barista competition is a thousand dollar event. Like you, you will pay easily over a thousand dollars just to participate and they only take the top 12 and they have 50 people field twice in a year. So you're going to spend a lot of money to get nowhere. But the thing that kept happening is it was just white man, white man, white mm-hmm, man, mm-hmm. white man. So Eric and T-Ben came along and they were like, let's create a camp for marginalized people, whether it be the race or gender or a mixture or anything. And let's give them visibility in this field. So the first year they had 10 baristas and the second year last year, they expanded to all the competitions. And I got in through the roaster competition and it was 10 of us, and it was great. It was the first time I ever felt like I knew what I was doing. And it came at a time where I was really discovering my own gender identity, and I needed to be around other people who were affirming and accepting anybody, as you said that you were. And it just, it was like kismet. And I wish it came three years earlier and not at the tail end of me being burnt out in coffee, but... I would literally do just about anything with them because, or anything for them because they really want to create visibility for people of color and queer people in coffee because it's enough of white men dominating the scene. Especially when you think of all the places that grow coffee, it's not white mm-hmm. men growing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's really cool that they've made an effort to say, even if you don't win, even if you don't move on to the next round, you're taking the space from what would just be another white man. And because you're now being seen, other coffee professionals see you, they can see themselves in that role. It's the whole representation thing. So that's, it's a really great organization. What's, what's the difference in your mind between something like Glitter Cat, where they're giving opportunities and visibility to minorities, and then something like the coffee company you mentioned in Maryland that's trying to kind of um, has a more tokenistic approach to going it looks good for us if we have minorities if you end up with a person of color in a position of authority or you know a position of being awarded does the motivation with getting them there what difference does that make to you I think it's so like I've, I've said this to other people and this is tangential but related so because I use he, they, some people say he, and it just doesn't sound right to me mentally. Some people say they, and it just doesn't sound right to me mentally. And it's just the place from where it comes. So because I know that the, pers- the place in Maryland, it was more 
look at me. I'm so great because of look mm-hmm. at what I did mm-hmm. as compared to, hey, enough of y'all. Look at all these other people out here. Like it's from a place of understanding and compassion rather than a place of egotism. Yeah. I um, recently read a book. It was called Such a Fun Age. And I can't remember the author, but it was very much focused around race in America. And there was this one character who was like a white woman and she was kind of a mommy blogger. And she was so proud of herself for having a black friend. (laughs) And it, it kind of strikes me as that, like, you know, when you have somebody who has loads of friends and they're really diverse and they just happen to be really outgoing and really interested in people, that's different to the white woman who really wants a black friend. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So it feels yeah. like a similarity there between something like Glitter Cat and something like where they're trying to, you know, make themselves more, seem more woke. Yeah, it's, it's a very real thing of, of white people like to do Wes Anderson things and just have us in the background to say, look at our, look at my picture of friends. Look at, there's some, there's some spice in there. It's just not all me where I have white friends and I don't think of them as having white friends. I just have friends, but I've heard them say, oh, that's my black friend or that's my Asian friend. It's like their friend, when they use friend, it's always preceded by a descriptor. And Mm. when a lot of marginalized people use friend, it's just, friend like it's it's such a weird thing and that's also i love it though because you can really know when somebody's genuine because if they're really just your friend they're not going to use a descriptor for what kind of friend you are they're they're just your friend yeah or like my college friend or my work friend or yeah that's fine yeah Yeah, yeah, but not my black work friend (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. it's like oh well thanks i i guess i remember i used to hang out with this guy who worked in a particular kind of industry that was very, like, very, very male-dominated, like, think... All of it. Well, well, yeah, but, I mean, think, like, building or law enforcement or, you know, fire service, that kind of thing. And it was very, like, macho. And there was one black guy on their team. And when they introduced him to you, they would go, this is Mark, he's black. Like, as, as a joke, you know what I mean? Which... I mean, like, it kind of had a slightly Irish context as well, because obviously in Ireland, there are even like far fewer people of colour than there are in the UK, obviously in America, even in like places like France, you know, is is much more diverse, especially Paris, whereas Ireland is just kind of now beginning to get to the point where there's a diversity of skin colour that isn't necessarily tied to nationality. So even 20 years ago, if you saw somebody who was a person of colour, there was a 90% chance that they were from somewhere else, if you know what I mean. Whereas yeah. it's only really now that we're starting to get kind of first, second generation people of colour who are also Irish. So, like, it is coming from a context of, it was unusual, you know what I mean, to see, like, a group of 20 men and for one of them to be black. But it was also just this, like, really weirdly uncomfortable thing where he seemed to think it was really funny. And, like, I always thought that it was just that he was there going, I have to pretend this is funny you know what i mean yeah, like i have to have laugh to. along because what's my other choice because then you're the angry black person and no one ever wants to be the angry black person on the converse though us black people we do the thing where if we have a white friend oh that's white mike but we say that's white mike as in look at this white person who's down to hang around all these black people so it's yeah. almost 
it's not an insulting thing. It's almost like, you know, this is a white guy, right? But yet he's here with us. This is kind of weird. Yeah. But I, it's hanging a lantern on it. But for a positive reason? Yeah, it's I weird. mean, that it's, I mean, it's almost complimentary because like no white person ever has had their whiteness pointed out and had it be a disadvantage. Yeah. You know what I mean? There it like, is. There so it is. it's, yeah. you know, it's totally different. Um, what is Florida like at the moment in terms of the Black Lives Matter protests? Is it like, is it very active? Is it not? What's going on? It, it was shortly after George Floyd, like, it, like everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but police have cracked down significantly. Plus, because of the spike in COVID we have in yeah. Florida. Like at this point, only people who are really going outside doing things are the people who don't believe in masks anyway. So okay. I feel like it, it took care of itself as far as law, law enforcement would say, like, we won't have to do anything anymore because these colored people aren't coming outside right now because it's, it's just too dangerous. Like, I was just watching news today and 90% of all hospital beds in Dade County, where Miami is, are full. So oh. you can't even take a chance out here. So no. uh, online, it's very active. Like, I'm surprised to see how much activity is in Florida because after Trayvon Martin was killed, that was the first time I thought Florida had any chance of being politically aware and active from a minority perspective. But it's just very weird that Florida is, it's a state unlike any other because the northern part is very southern and it's very white and it's as much as I love North Florida, it's hella racist. And in the further south you come, it's very northern and very diverse, but it's a different kind of racism to where now it's, it's they are the people who say, that's my black friend. But they wouldn't okay. say it to you, but they would say it to their white friends. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's weird. Like, I don't think anything will change in Florida ever because between white Americans and white Cubans, there's just too much money in it for them to ever be like, I think we need to do things differently. Like, they don't even care enough about us to make us wear masks or stay inside. So why would they care about any racial injustices? Yeah. I suppose for a while there, all of the news was COVID, right? Yeah. And then for a while, all of the news was BLM. How, how have you found that from the point of view of somebody who is a person of colour, like reading about all of these like black people being murdered, black people being assaulted. Like, do you find it very difficult to absorb? At or, first, you know, are yeah. like, are you glad it's being highlighted or do you literally just, you know, is it too much? So when Ferguson happened, let me come from a different perspective. I grew up from a perspective of growing up in black cities without having to know black suffering so much because everybody else is black. So then there was nothing to really compare it to. And I already had my own hangups about race anyway, to where, because being a, my dad looks white, is half black. A lot of people would just think of me like as a mixed kid. So I was always kind of, eh, he's cool, but you know, he ain't really down or whatever. So I was always in this weird purgatory. But even, it wasn't until I went to a black college that I really understood like, oh, Black is the same everywhere. Like, black suffering is the same in Australia as it is in America, as it is in Brazil, as it is in England. And that's fucked up. 
but I didn't know like police brutality was a thing until Ferguson and until Trayvon, who wasn't even killed by police, but might as well have been. Mm. And it gets to a point where after the 300th police shooting, you just say, okay, when am I, I have nothing left because if the first one didn't get you, the second one didn't get you, the 50th didn't get you. By the time, I'm surprised George Floyd took the spark to create all this hubbub because to me, I, I didn't even watch it, but from what I can tell, it's standard operating procedure. Like, what was so different about this time where if the kids getting killed didn't spark any outrage in you, mm-hmm. why a grown man who calls for his mom? Because he hasn't been with his mom in years, but these children live with their moms yeah. and you didn't care. It's more just like to a point where I, I don't want to say it, but it, it sometimes feels very patronizing. Like, I don't think there's a, a real urge to change or really care or want to understand. It's this thing of, well, we know something is wrong and we want to show allyship because it makes me feel better. Rather so you, than, think, you think there's an aspect of kind of performative allyship yeah. to it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, of course, uh, not all white people. But, yeah, because the same people, I know people who are saying 10 years ago, oh, that's messed up. But, I mean, you know, they did have a record. Or that's messed up. But mm, they mm. could have just done things differently. I'm like, I've been hemmed up by police doing absolutely nothing. Just walking to my dorm room. Yeah. This is just a thing. Like We don't do anything. I remember saying to my sister a couple of months ago, last year, I think, I got pulled over for speeding one morning when I was going through a school zone. I didn't realize it was a school zone. We don't have, our police officers in Ireland don't have guns. So I find it really weird to see people with guns. Well, I mean, like we don't have guns at all in Ireland, but including the police force. So when I see people with guns on their hips, whether they're police force or not, like I find it really just really weird though I'm like I just can't believe these people are walking around with guns anyway so when I got pulled over and I was telling my sister about it and I was like oh my god I was really nervous and I just was trying not to look at his gun but I was really aware that he had a gun and I was like didn't want to I think he asked me if I had my driver's license and I was like didn't want to move because I was like I didn't want him to think that I was reaching for a gun or something and she was basically like Rosemary you're white you're fine yeah (laughs) she's like you're like you don't need to fucking worry that this cop's going to shoot you for speeding like you're white and it was if kind you were of, lower class, you would. Well, I mean, I suppose, like, class as well, like, that's a whole discussion that you could get into. But lower class, like, I've seen, there's such a disparity between the rich and the poor in America that I've never seen before. Oh, yeah. So I suppose what more. I mean to say is that lower class in America would be, like feels like it's kind of slightly more obvious than it would be in Ireland. But we also don't have, like, we do have a class system. There's, you know, there's working class and there's middle class and there's, we don't really have upper class or aristocracy. But we don't have people living in trailers Hmm. next to people living in mansions. You know what I mean? Like, we have certain ethnic minority in Ireland, members of the Irish traveling community, and they live in kind of what would be trailers or caravans and their their tradition is kind of nomadic and they travel around but we don't have like regular people who work in the store living in trailers because they Mm. can't afford to buy a house you know what i mean okay and like but like 
we also don't have massive college debt. We don't have people who have to declare medical bankruptcy. So like all of these things, I'm really shocked sometimes when I drive downtown and I see people's houses and I'm like, oh my God, like how do people live in that house? Because the door is blown off or like, you know, all of the windows are broken or their car is clearly, you know, 25 years old and the back window has gone. You know, people, there are just so many people here who have so little by way of money in a way that you wouldn't have in Ireland. So like what I mean to say is it would never occur to me to be like, oh, it's lucky I'm not quote unquote lower class because that lower class isn't as visible in Ireland as it is here at all. And like there are people living in poverty. You know what I mean? Of course, there are people living in poverty. There are people living like below the breadline in Ireland. It's just not obvious. But like kind of if you're living in abject poverty in Ireland, you're you might be classed as homeless, but you you may also then be living in like government assisted housing. And so you might all be sharing one room with your three kids. And, you know, we consider that a huge problem and there's a housing crisis, but you're also not living in a shack. You know what I mean? Okay. And you're not also working three jobs to live in a shack, which I think is a big difference, like that there are people here working 80, 90 hours a week and still struggling massively. Whereas if you're struggling massively, massively in Ireland, it's often because you're not employed. It's not because you're working. (laughs) Coming here was a mistake. I know. I was actually, somebody messaged me because I was having a whole kind of mess up with my social security number and trying to uh, open a bank account. And somebody said, God, like, you know, are you sure you wanted to move to America? And like, really, the only thing that brought me here was wanting to be near my sister and her kids. And like the guy that I'm dating. But like, yeah, love, love. But I've never wanted to move to America for America's sake, if you know what I mean. Yeah, gotcha. Like, yeah, I'm America only really sucks. here. <laughs> no, it sucks. It well, sucks. Like, you know, like, there, there are a lot of things that I like about it. But the longer I'm here, the more I realize that the things I like about it, I'm only able to like them because of my privilege. So, like, I really like that you can order something today and it will arrive tomorrow. <laughs> and I really like that because I have the fucking money to order something today and that'll, that'll arrive tomorrow. And I really okay. like that stores that are is, open 24-7. You know what I mean? Like all yeah. these kinds of things. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't have its moments, but as a whole, America sucks. It is a shithole. It is a shithole country that doesn't even know it's a shithole country. What do you think? What's your prediction for the election? Oh, Trump wins. Oh. Trump wins. Hands down. It's just... If we look at it, I study political science, so I can come from it as a bit of an expert, even though I'm not. But if we look at it just simply by numbers, there are more liberal people in America than conservative. That's a fact. However, we're all concentrated in the same areas. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can win New York and Pennsylvania and Florida, or sometimes Florida and California, but that's not going to get you to 270. Like, you need that and... Michigan and Wisconsin and you need the other places too and it's like I grew up my family is a bunch of hillbillies and even they're like you know I don't really like Trump however and it's like just stop at the however part Mm, because mm -hmm. I'm not saying Biden's any good either he's a piece of shit as well however don't stop at just stop at Trump sucks (laughs) yeah yeah, don't don't be the black person out there like but you know he, he does want to bring back jobs to West Virginia it's like have they come back yet? Yeah. No? Okay, then what are we doing? It's like, yeah, but I, I would not, I keep telling my friend, 
who does a political radio show back in D.C., that I would not be surprised if Biden was a plan all along just to lose, really send America in a shithole so that whoever they bring up in four years from here is like, we we'll got to get this person. Yeah, yeah. Like, no one wants Biden. Biden went from fifth and sixth in the polls to front runner in a day. Yeah. How? <laughs> Old black Southerners, that's how. But still, like, I... Yeah. Oh, it's Ugh. not. Yeah, I expect him to win. I expect him, but I expected him to win in 2016. I expect him to win again. He he knows how to put on a show, and that's that's what a presidential election is. Can you put on a show? Okay, great. No one cares about policy. Most people don't understand policy. Yeah, yeah. But we understand. Like I had a teacher who always say, if you want to be a president, you got to be the person somebody wants to have a drink with at a bar. And if they can't see themselves having a drink with you, you'll never win an election. And but, even I said, look at Trump, like, the motherfucker's a showman. Like, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he would be entertaining for 15 minutes. Like, I don't want to go and have a drink with him, but I can see how if you're sitting at a bar and he sat next to you, you'd be like, that was a mad old guy, but he was funny. Yeah, right. Where Biden's just a mad old guy. And, and I'd say he'd be boring as well. Yeah. And he'd touch you. Oh. But so would Trump. <laughs> Fair. But nobody cares about Trump. Welcome Gee, to America. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. How can people, do you want people to follow you? Do you want people to find you online? Where can they yeah. follow and find you online? If you like wrestling or coffee or shit talking or music or sports, or especially the women's sports. Or The Bachelor or Bachelorette. You can follow me at Cochino Chewy, um, C-O-C-H-I-N-O-C-H-U-Y. On Twitter, Instagram, All LinkedIn, that good stuff. probably everywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I will put your details in the notes in the show notes. And thank you so much for talking to me. And I'm sure I will be talking to you again very soon. Thank you for having me. Goodbye. I do, I, I do not say thanks. I say you just thanks. Did. You oh. just did. Check the tape. I don't hear it. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for listening to How To Be Sound. You will have another episode with you, I sincerely hope, within the next two to three weeks. But I think my dreams of having this be a regular fortnightly podcast may have to be put aside as I try to juggle all of the different things that I'm kind of focusing my time on. Like I said at the beginning, I have another podcast, Not Without My Sister. That is presented by me and my sister, Beatrice McCabe. And if you like How To Be Sound, you may like Not Without My Sister. And actually, even if you don't like How To Be Sound... You might like Not Without My Sister because it's very, very, very different. How To Be Sound is produced by Liam Garrity. Liam has his own podcast, Meet Your Maker, which you can find anywhere you get podcasts or online at meetyourmaker.ie. Last, but by no means least, if you like the work that I do and you would like to support me, you can send me the price of a coffee or whatever you can afford by signing up to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Rosemary McCabe. You get a whole load of added extras on there, but above all else, you get to help support me and the work that I do and um, show me that you think it's worth paying for. Thank you so much and I'll catch you soon. How to be sound is part of the Warren, the home of great Irish podcasts, as is my podcast, Science Drops. You can find more great shows at thewarren.ie. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 